0: And turn with me to Mark chapter 6, Gospel of Mark chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 1 through 6 today. So Gospel of Mark chapter 6, 1 through 6. And we will pray now for the Holy Spirit to help us and we'll read this. So God... Thank you for sending your comforter. Thank you for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And we pray for that now, especially, O God, as we open your word and as as we preach your word, Father, help us, help us to see Christ. Lord, we want to see him. We want to behold him in his truth and in his glory, his majesty. Lord, give us grace to have eyes to see, to have ears to hear, O Lord. We know that this is a, a work of miraculous grace that cannot be done apart from the Holy Spirit. Illuminate us today, O God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, chapter 6, 1 through 6. Let's read this. Verse 1. Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there except that he he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. Okay, so let's go back to verse 1. And so if you remember last week, we are talking about Jairus, and he had a little girl who was 12 years old, and she was sick, and so Christ is on the way. Eventually, he heals her. He's stopped beforehand by a woman who has a flow of blood for 12 years, and so she kind of intercepts him before he gets there. But she, he heals her too, and then he goes to Jairus' house. He heals her, raises her from the dead. And so it says in verse 1, Then... He came out from there, right? Where did he come out from? He came out from that house. He came out from that area. He was doing those works in Capernaum. So most of the time that we've seen Christ work up to this point, he's been in Capernaum. Capernaum is a sea town in the, north, uh, the northern part of Israel. And so where we are now, look what it says. It says he, he went out from there and came to his own country. Now, in your heading, you might have something like Nazareth. In my heading, it says Jesus rejected at Nazareth. You might have something like that. The passage itself does not tell us he's from Nazareth. You have to go back to Mark chapter 1 for that. So we know that Jesus is from Nazareth. And when it says this, literally this means something like he went to his fatherland, his own country. And that's Nazareth, okay? That's 25 miles to the north of Capernaum. So you have Capernaum, that's where he's been. He goes 25 miles north, and there he is now. And that's where you have verse 1. That's kind of the setting or the backdrop. This is also the conclusion of the second major section of this ministry of Christ. The next section, we're going to see Christ commission the 12 to go out. So they themselves are going to be an extension of what Christ has been doing already. Up to this point, if you think about it, the disciples have not really done much other than just observe and kind of watch and hang out with Jesus. The very next section, they're going to be sent out. That's why in verse 1, the next part where it says, and his disciples followed him. You see that at the end of verse 1? And his disciples followed him. That's an important phrase. It's not like Mark is just trying to take up space here, and he's like, well, i got to write something, so I'm just going to write, by the way. This, this, Mark is trying to alert us. He's preparing us for something, right? His disciples are with him. They're observing him. They're learning from him, because next, it's their turn. So that's kind of what you have here. So that's verse 1. Christ is now in his fatherland. He's in his home country. He's 25 miles, um, excuse me, I said north, south of Capernaum. And then verse 2, here's where you have it. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. That's not unusual. We've seen Christ doing that from the very beginning. The first thing he does after he wrestles with the devil, after he, he, he throws the, the devil out in the wilderness, is he goes to the synagogue and he, he starts exercising demons in the synagogue. And people right away, they're having a hard time knowing who he is. The demons are The demons are saying, hey, you're, you're Jesus, the son of God. They know who he is. But the people are seeing this for the first time and they're still trying to wrestle with what's going on. And so here he's in a synagogue. And what's he doing in the synagogue? He's not healing people. Remember we've said over and over and over again, the main mission of Christ is not to heal people. Most of these churches today, you would think that the main thing that Christ is involved in is healing. That's not, Christ does not have a healing campaign. He goes to teach. He goes to proclaim the things of God. And in the process, people need healing. And he doesn't turn them away. So what, he, what you have here is he's in the synagogue, he's teaching, it's on the Sabbath day, that's very usual, very common. But then what you have is, look what you have here, okay? You have people... Who have known him from the time he was a little guy probably and, and growing up and they would have known him this is a town of about 500 people it's a very small town very small community everyone knows each other in Clovis New Mexico everyone knows each other there's 40,000 people here how do you think 500 people would be right you know who this guy is but look what happens okay so here he comes and not only not only are they hearing him and it says so it says in many hearing him so they're hearing him But they're astonished saying this, and they're going to admit two things about Christ, which are important, and they're not wrong. They admit this. They say, okay, number one, where did this man get these things, and what wisdom is this which is given to him? That's the first thing they acknowledge. Something called wisdom is given to him. But you stop there, and you have to ask yourself, okay, what is the importance of something being given? What are they trying to say here? They're saying that he didn't come up with this on his own. He, something from outside of him gave this to him now if we, we've already seen in the life of Christ people have already come to this conclusion about Christ they're like listen we can't deny the fact that what you're doing is supernatural it's, it's otherworldly it's not from this world it's not from this realm the problem though is this you only have two options if you're to that place which is the right place to say this is otherworldly now you have two options you can ascribe it to God or you can ascribe it to Satan And so they're trying to figure out, okay, is this from God or is this from Satan? But it's definitely something that's been given to them. It's supernatural. Okay, so they're right on that part. The second part, it says as far as things that they admit that are taking place is that such mighty works are performed by his hands. So they're also acknowledging he's doing mighty works with his hands. People are being healed. Demons are being exercised. Little girls are being raised from the dead. Things are happening. They're seeing that. They're no doubt hearing that. You know, they're only 25 miles away from the, from the major spot where Christ is doing these things. And there's no doubt that some of these people have made the trek to Capernaum. It's a bigger town. They're going to go down there. They're going to see things. They're certainly hearing things about about what christ is doing and there might even be illusion at the bottom here to to maybe christ has already done some miracles in this community but what they know for sure is that he's given wisdom he's been given wisdom and he's doing mighty works now here's the thing though okay now that they've received that part the, the proper response is to give glory to god to bend the knee and say man we praise god right the messiah has come the son of god has come but rather than that what do they do in verse 3 look what they do so they respond him respond to him they abrade him really they 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 dismiss it they're they're critical they're skeptical they're skeptical in in three different ways in verse 3 you see this look what they say the first thing they say is this not the carpenter they're saying wait a minute you know i see we know what he's saying we 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 see what he's doing but this guy's a carpenter <laughs> right i mean a guy who's doing what he's doing and saying what he's saying you can't you can't be a carpenter if you're going to do that now here's something important to know about this culture though this culture is not a culture that looks down upon blue collar kind of work okay uh the greek culture will later on the greeks there was a guy named kelsus he'll actually be very critical of christianity as a greek guy um, in the year i think the second century he'll be critical of christianity because he'll say something like your founder was a carpenter there's no way it's true he was a manual laborer he was an everyday worker he was a common guy in this culture, in Jesus's culture, they didn't look down upon manual labor. It's not the Greek world. At the same time, though, they are recognizing that there is an inconsistency here. There's something off here. You're in everyday labor, and not only that, you know, most of the time when you see of Christ being, a, you hear of Christ being a carpenter. Um, we think he's working with wood and that's not necessarily wrong the word though is is more general than that it's not just a carpenter it would mean somebody who works with their hands makes things with their hands you could have uh willie shout out in the back a sheet metal worker he's he, he in this sense he would be um in the greek it's someone who makes things with their hands right and so most most uh most most commentaries and people who have been to this area will actually say, if you go to this area and if you went to that area 2000 years ago, there's actually not a lot of wood in that area. But what you do have is a lot of stone in that area. And so they'll say, you know, and I I don't, I don't think they're wrong. They'll say something like at the very least, Christ might've been working with wood, but he was definitely working with stone. He was probably most definitely a stone mason, something like that. And so, um, but you know, the, the reality is he's probably doing a little bit of everything. Okay, so he's a guy who works with his hands, but what they're doing is they're saying, listen, man, we, we, we know what he does. We know what he does. I mean, they're going to the shop, they're probably interacting with him and buying wood from him or, or stone. He's probably making things from him in the past. And so they're saying this, they're saying something like that right? So it's like, hey, we know what he does in, in, his, in his downtime. We know where he works. We know who he is. There's no way that you can you can there's no way this guy is who people are whispering that he is. The son of God, Messiah maybe remember when he turns to his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am they say well some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah so, I mean Jeremiah you know so people are talking like he's something but they're saying that nah, I don't think that can really be though he's a carpenter. we visited his shop you know so here's the second thing they say the second thing they say is he's the son of Mary. Now this, if you're just reading through it, you might say, well, he is the son of Mary. That's not wrong. That's correct. He is the son of Mary. But the way this is written, the way that it's said, this is a slur. This is a slur. And the reason this is a slur is because, so sometimes you look at this and people will say, well, it seems relatively clear that Joseph was dead by now. And the problem though is this, okay, even if Joseph was dead, People in this culture always referred to people by their father. He's the son of Joseph. He's the son of so-and-so. He's the son of so-and-so. When they referred to Jesus as the son of Mary, even if Joseph was dead, you know, it was still the custom for them, for people to identify um, the person by the name of the dead father. So this implies that Jesus was born illegitimately. Okay. There's no doubt. There's something behind this name, this phrase, the Son of Mary. The only time is, is the only time a woman is referenced is if she has if, if if there's some something scandalous that she's done. Sometimes in the Old Testament you'll see a reference to David's sisters, and, and, and instead of giving the uh, uh, the reference to so and so is the son of the father, it'll say so so and so is the son of uh, David's sister. But other than that, you're never going to find any kind of reference. Now, you and I are looking at this and we're like, well, of course. I mean, I know what's going on. He was born to to Mary. Mary was a virgin. The Holy Spirit came and gave birth, right? And so that's true. We believe that. Absolutely. That's what the Bible teaches. But I'm saying in this culture, that's not quite the belief yet. That's not quite what's going on yet at least in general if it was the belief they would certainly they would certainly believe in it, right if you actually believe in the divine birth that christ was born by the holy spirit you're not going to have this problem like yeah but he's a carpenter now you're going to bend the knee so they're saying he's the son of mary it's a slur he's saying he's not even born legitimately so the third reason though or the third thing they say as far as dismissing it say they say we know his family and this kind of, is kind of like the whole thing. We know his family. In other words, and then it goes on and it says, hey, his brother is James and so-and-so and so-and-so. His sisters are here with us. He has brothers and sisters. We know they're common. They're common people. They're not, you know, there's they're, they're, it's not like now. If you ever engage or talk to a Roman Catholic, or if you've ever heard of this idea that Mary is a perpetual virgin, that is the official doctrine or dogma of Roman Catholic teaching today is that Mary was a perpetual virgin. And then you read this and you're like, all right, wait a minute. Okay, it says right here that Jesus was had, had a brother named James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and his sisters. And so how do you reconcile that? Uh, what they'll try to do is they'll try to say that when this is said... The, the way this is being described is something like you and I would describe each other or call each other brothers and sisters as Christians. We call each other brothers and sisters. We're part of the same spiritual family. So they'll try to say that's what they're talking about here. They'll also say that this is a reference to Jesus having cousins. Okay, on the, on the, play, the plain reading of it, though, here and elsewhere in Scripture, it's very clear he does have brothers. It's very clear um, Mary had children, right? And so Jesus was the eldest, no doubt, of course. Uh, but at the same time... You do have you, you have a very clear case there. So there's they're trying to say they're trying to say, look, there's no way this guy is they're trying to reconcile it. Look what the very last part of this though it says. It says So they were offended at him offended in the greek there is scandal scandalized they were scandalized by him and it's in the imperfect meaning they continued to be scandalized by him they they were being scandalized by him so in other words it wasn't just something that christ did it wasn't just some miracle it wasn't just some teaching that scandalized them they're saying that the totality of christ is scandalizing me i am in the process of being scandalized by this person named jesus christ and he's in his home country. He's in his, home, in his own hometown. And this is taking place. And so here's what you have. The next part in verse 4 through 6, you have Christ's response to that. Okay, And he responds to that in five different ways. Number one, his first response is he says this thing in verse 4. He says, uh, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now, this is not something that Jesus invented. This was a common saying. It was, you can go into ancient Greek literature and and other literature of the day, and you can find people saying these things. It wasn't common, but it was true. And so Christ is recognizing, hey, this this is a valid statement, and it applies to the situation. And so that's what he's doing, first of all. It is a common saying. But number two, notice how Christ sees himself here. Christ sees himself as a prophet. That's important to know. Okay, Christ is prophet we say prophet priest and king christ himself is identifying himself as a prophet which is important anytime you're engaging people unbelievers whatever even jews who think that christ was a deceiver and everything else well jesus sees himself as a prophet all right so you have to you have to deal with that okay jesus is a prophet he sees himself as a prophet he's also anticipating what's going to happen later whenever um Whenever he faces persecution and whenever his people face persecution. If you turn with me to Mark chapter 13, you're going to see a a, a little insight here from Christ. And remember who the book of Mark is written to. It's, It's written to Christians in Rome who are being persecuted for their faith. This is Mark chapter 13. Jesus warns them. He says this in verse 12. He says, now brother will betray brother to death and father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. The disciples are looking. I mean, can you imagine? They're reading this about Christ. Not only are they reading it, but, or they're hearing it, but as they're hearing it, they've seen this happen in the life of Christ himself. Now Christ is telling his disciples, as you go forth, expect the same thing. It's going to happen to you too. And so he's saying this, but this is in a sense, anticipation of the even greater persecution that's going to happen. It's going to culminate in his own uh, persecution in the cross. And then with his disciples, they're going to go forth. And again, this book written to Christians in Rome at this point, they're being tormented. They're thrown into the arenas. They're being, they're being lit on fire, everything else. Um, And it's continuing to happen today. So here's what he does though. The second thing in verse 5, okay, so he says a prophet, he mentions this this idea of prophet. um, And he's not not welcome in his own country, relatives, own house, okay. Verse 5, though, notice what it says. Now, he could do no mighty work there. He couldn't do any mighty work there. Now, if you remember what happens with Jairus, Christ goes to Jairus' house and raises Jairus' little girl who's 12 years old because of Jairus' faith. Remember when he says don't be afraid just believe. Keep believing. Keep believing. Have faith. The lady who comes to Jesus touches the hem of his garment. Christ turns around and says, "Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your faith has made you well." So there's this idea between Christ's works and faith. There is this there's there's a correlation here. It's kind of like in a sense when it comes to even us in our salvation, right? If you don't have faith in Christ, guess what? You're not going to be saved. You can't be saved, right? Now, we know that faith is a gift that comes from God. We know that anytime someone does have faith, anytime someone's eyes are open, their ears are open, that's a gift that comes from God. At the same time, if you don't have that, God's not going to work. God's not going to do anything there, right? In the sense of, uh, Calvin says this. Let me. Calvin's quoting Augustine, actually. Augustine says, faith is the open mouth of a vessel. Something like a cup something that contains contents. Faith is the open mouth of a vessel. Unbelief is the stopper which closes the vessel off to receiving the contents God is pouring into it. So if you don't have faith... You're not going to be saved if you don't have faith. And we'll talk a minute at the end here. We're going to talk about this idea of whether or not if you have enough faith, God's going to necessarily do a miracle for you. Or if he doesn't do a miracle, it's because you don't have faith. We're going to talk about that at the very end. But just just know here, there is a correspondence here. Their hardness of heart, their unbelief, their lack of desire for Christ. Christ is saying, you know what? What what? What can I do here? I can't help you. There's nothing, I mean, what do you expect, right? So at this point, now look though, here's what's nice. In verse, um, verse five, the third thing, the third response of Christ, it says that even though he could do no mighty work there, he does lay his hands on a few sick people and heals them. So there's always a remnant. When you read the scriptures, no matter how bad things get or how dark things get, remember Elijah, Elijah's like, man, God, they've killed all the prophets. I'm the only one left. There's no one else. It's just me. And God's like, listen, relax. There's 7,000 other prophets who have not bent the knee to, to bail. And there's always a remnant. And so you, you're like, you know, you might be at work. You might be at school. You might be thinking, man, nobody else is a Christian here. So I'm I'm the only one here it's probably the case that there are other christians there probably probably maybe not and depending on but you know maybe there's like three of you but the reality is is if there's not more christians maybe god will make more christians or will bring along more christians but you know here's the thing okay you know in general on the grand scheme of things as things decline into chaos let's say even in america and things you look around and you're like man where, where are all the believers where are all the christians and then you're like oh yeah there's a church in clovis there's another church. There's churches churches in Clovis that have not bent the knee to bail. I think mean, there's two of them. Two churches. In Levitt, there's two or three churches. In um, Denver, Colorado, we got someone from Denver, right? There are churches up there. I know, right? And so wherever you're looking, you're like, man, New York City's pagan. There, are, there, there can't be any good churches up there. There is a good church in New York City. I know the pastor. So wherever you go, you know, God's going to have a remnant and some usually when it comes to this idea. But you have that here. So even though there was a lot of unbelief, you did have a few people who clearly believed in, in what Christ was saying and believed in Christ. And so he does. He is able to do a few good works, a few things. But here's the thing. Here's the worst part about the it's almost one of the darkest condemnations that Christ gives in the entire gospel of Mark. If not, if not the worst condemnation, the next part. Okay, this is the fourth thing as far as his response is in verse six. It says, and he marveled because of their unbelief. You will never, ever, ever, ever in the gospel of Mark, and I don't think anywhere else in the gospels period, you will never have Christ marveling as someone's unbelief he marvels at people's faith he marvels at the gentiles faith whenever the centurion comes and he has the he has the servant who's sick and jesus he comes to jesus and says jesus can you come heal my servant and he he tells jesus but but you know what jesus you don't have to go to my house you just speak the word and it's going to happen and he's a centurion he's a roman he's a roman soldier and jesus looks at this guy he marvels at his faith The other time that Jesus marvels is whenever you have the Gentile woman come to to the Samaritan woman. She comes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, my, my little girl is sick. Can you help? And Jesus says, it's not right for me to give what's holy to people who are dogs, Samaritans in that context. And she says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat crumbs that fall off the table. And he looks at her and he marvels at her faith. He marvels at her belief. Here he's marveling at their unbelief. He can't believe it. Right? You have people, and he's, he's dumbfounded. You know, you know, when he's dealing with scribes and Pharisees, it's amazing. Because you don't have him marveling, just dumbfounded at their, at their unbelief. Here, he's looking at it, and he's like, guys, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, what's going How can you not believe? He marvels at it. But here's what happens next. That's a rough go. You know, if you go somewhere, and you share the gospel. And when we do it, we're, we're proclaiming Christ. When Christ is doing he's proclaiming himself. They're rejecting him. It's much more personal for Christ. We take it personal when they do reject our Savior. It is personal, right? At the same time, though, it's not not directly personal because we're not Christ. But here it's directly personal. When that happens to us, I don't know about you, but it's easy to shut down at that point and just say, man, I'm done. I'm not doing that again. I I hate being rejected. I hate... It's 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 not pleasant. I mean, it's com- you know, nobody likes confrontation. I don't it, it's just like, man, it's just not the I, I don't want to do it anymore. But look what Christ does, and this is the way he always does it, and the disciples always do it, and it's a great encouragement for us. The very last part of verse 6 it says, "Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching." He doesn't quit. He doesn't stop. He doesn't water it down. He doesn't make it more attractive. He doesn't marvel at their unbelief and say, "Okay, you know what? Let's start over. I'm going to make it I'm going to make it a lot easier." I'm gonna make these these commands and demands and things. I'm gonna make it simple for you. You know, and the gospel is simple enough. But he doesn't he doesn't paint it up. He doesn't make it more worldly, right? He, but what he does is he continues to go through the villages teaching. I was reading through the, the Acts of the Apostles this morning. That they, They're doing the same thing. It's amazing. If you read through the Acts of the Apostles, especially from chapter 12 onward to 28, and you just sit down and you start reading it, these guys are going through from city to city. At one point, they're being worshipped by these people, Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas are like, no, don't worship us. And then the next moment, they're being stoned by the same people that were worshiping him. And then Paul's stoned, he's laying there for dead. And then he pops right back up and he's like, boom, let's go to the next town. Let's keep preaching. And you're like, man, where does this come from? Well, it comes from God. It comes from the Holy Spirit. We can't do that on our own. But it also comes from a love for God, a love for souls, a love for the for, for people to, to um, not just to know the truth, but but also every time Christ is proclaimed, Christ is glorified. I think that's the main thing. And so Christ is going around, he's teaching, he's telling them about himself. And then from all of that, from this passage of six verses, there's a lot of things to take away from for us. Okay. Number one, go back to verse one. At the end of verse one, he says, his disciples followed him. I made a a, a small mention of that. His disciples followed, but think about this. Okay. When Christ goes into these atmospheres, he has disciples with him. We know that, but Christ is not the only one catching flack for his teaching his disciples are also in a bad spot especially after christ leaves that's why they're terrified that's why when christ gets crucified they're like man we're out of here because now our necks are on the line why because you're associated with them you're with him you're a disciple of his and so if he's in trouble if he's seen an outcast or a reproach or a scandal if he's scandalizing people and you're a disciple of him, guess what that makes you a scandal if you're actually living for them you know it's easy i guess if you're a christian but you never you know you, you never talk about them you never show that you never i mean that's one thing and you know there's enough of that going around in the in the culture in, at large you know most we're at the texas tech football game evangelizing yesterday and you know like 99 percent of people say they're Christians out there and i don't think so man right does anyone else know that you're a christian and, and here's the thing, right? So in this context, what you're having is what it means to be a disciple is to follow him. And though he's not here today physically in his presence, physically, he is with us spiritually. And as we go forth into the world, into the culture, into our homes, with our neighbors, any, anytime we're interacting, if we're a disciple of him, there comes a reproach with the gospel. There does. And people who are offended by Christ are going to be offended by us. That's why you have persecution. And I'm not saying to go look for persecution. It's going to happen. As you're talk, As people know you're a Christian, if they're not a Christian, they're going to be scandalized by it. If you're taking a stand for Christ. Here's the thing on this, okay? Um, to think about it in another way most people in this culture and this is the problem that that jesus encountered at his house or in, in the synagogue with with people of his village okay most people in the culture why do most people including people like hillary clinton joe biden right everybody says they're a christian donald trump to, to you know play both sides of donald trump's not a christian all right um joe biden's not a christian Hillary Clinton, she's like an ordained Methodist for something, right? She's not a Christian. And you're like, "Well, how do you know?" I'm not I'm not the judge. I get it, right? But Christ says you know by your fruit. You know by your fruit. And so what you're having here is this, okay? If you go to somebody and you tell them, "What is Christianity?" and they start explaining to you what Christianity is, they have a notion of Jesus or of Christianity that is not consistent with the Bible that's the problem so when these people are seeing Jesus enter into the synagogue he's teaching things and he's doing things that they're looking at him and they're saying what you're doing and what you're teaching is not consistent with my my conception of what you should be of who you should be and so if you go to somebody and you say listen okay I know that you think Jesus would have loved abortion or would have totally been on board with homosexuality right And they'll say that, that Jesus is on our side. And you're like, all right, all right, all right. But what what does the Bible actually say about these topics? And when you explain these things and you you bring out these areas, right, then what happens is is the Jesus that you present becomes a scandal. They don't want that Jesus. They're like, no, 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 wait a minute. That's not the Jesus I know. That's why Christ says beware because there will be many false Christs who come. There will be many, many, many false Christs who come and they'll present a fake Jesus. They'll present a Jesus that's not the real Jesus. So you ask, well, how do you know who the true Jesus is? You read the Word. You study who Christ is in the Word. That's how we know who Jesus is. And, and the error can be even with Christians. You know, even Christians, we can get on these extremes where we have these notions of Christ. This is, this is, and this is why it's important that we examine our own, our own, I guess, presuppositions, our own conceptions of Jesus. Because, you know, y- you might, you might have a personality that loves the Jesus who goes in and flips tables and is calling Herod a fox and judging and whipping things with, with, with lashes. You know, we're like, yes, man, I love it. But if that's the, and then somebody comes in like, yeah, but you know, Jesus is meek. He's mild. He's humble. He comes lowly riding on a donkey, right? Those are other aspects that are true. And so that could be a scandal for somebody who really wants to latch onto this Jesus that is just flipping tables and nothing else, but it can go the other way. Jesus is meek and he's compassionate and he's gentle and he's gracious and he's patient. But when someone comes and says, yeah, but Jesus flips tables and calls Herod a fox and he calls out, tells people they're whitewashed tombs and everything else, then they're scandalized by it, right? They're like, wait, that doesn't fit my notion of Jesus. Um, You can see this not just with Christ, you can see this with other areas of the scriptures. Psalm 5.5, you can look at it, says God hates all evildoers. Not the evil that they do, right? He doesn't hate the evil that they do. That's not what the Bible says. It says that he hates all evildoers, those who do evil. And you're like, wait a minute, man. I don't don't buy that. Then Christ, God, has become a scandal for you. You see that? See how easy that is? For some Calvinists, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. You're like, wait a minute. God doesn't love everybody. They're rebels. They're evil, right? And they are. But at the same time, you have this verse that says, For God so loved the world. That verse can be a scandal. That's not a good thing. And so even for Christians, we have to look at it in context and in light of the totality of what God teaches us from Genesis to Revelation and not just try to cherry pick it and make it fit or or conform to some kind of pattern that we want Jesus to be. That's what they're doing here. But we as Christians can do the same thing. So you have to watch that. All of us. And again, how do you do that? You spend time in the Word. Here's the other thing on this, Okay, The other thing that's important is this. when you're looking at Christians, and, and especially, you know, so we have children. We raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We expose them to the things of Christ. We, we, we you know, everybody's indoctrinated, by the way. The word indoctrination is a bad word. I get it, but I don't care who you are. You have been indoctrinated by something. Um, atheists are indoctrinated by humanism. I mean, we're all indoctrinated. The, the thing is, is are you indoctrinated with truth? That's what we want, right? So you want to you want to immerse your children with that which is true, which is the word of God. You want to immerse them in it. We want to be immersed in it, right? But with that, here's the thing, okay? There can, there, there is a, a uh, there's not a danger in being immersed in the scriptures, but something to watch out for is this idea that the things of God that are spectacular and supernatural and amazing and glorious, let's say like the resurrection, can become mundane and ordinary and plain because we've heard it a thousand times. You know, if you could go back to that first time when you actually heard the gospel, if you go to a, a place right now where they've never heard the gospel, and it's not to say they'll believe. Has anyone ever heard of the uh, the, the, the sermon Ten Shuckles in a Shirt by Paris Reedhead? And he talks about, man, he was like, I, I wanted to be a missionary to Africa. Guthrie, have you heard the, the sermon? You've got to hear it, man. He's a missionary to Africa. Before he goes, he's like, man, all my life I've thought, you know, I know these, these, and I paraphrase it, I know these people in the West, they don't believe Jesus, but if I go to this place in Africa and I preach the gospel, when I bring the gospel to these, these savages in Africa, man, they're going to be hungry for it. They're going to love to hear it. And then he goes, he's like, I went to Africa and I started preaching the gospel. And they wanted to kill me. They wanted to, you know, they wanted... And his point is, is that, you know, the gospel is an offense. Because when you're going and you're saying there's only one way to God, is through this Jesus Christ. He recognizes, okay, I, I had a misunderstanding about human nature. But the reality is this, okay. It is more of a scandal for them the first time they're hearing the gospel than it is for somebody who's heard it a thousand times. And there's just apathy. But going back to us... The resurrection, these doctrines, these glorious things that God has done for us in the scriptures, these things that we read about that are that are remarkable, they can become kind of dull. I'm not saying they're dull. I'm saying they can become dull in our minds the more and more we hear it, the more and more we hear about it. We can kind of just say, oh, yeah, the resurrection. Or even like, oh, yeah, the, the Trinity. Or, oh, yeah. And I'm not saying, because here's the thing, right? I think this happens, this is kind of human nature. So the way to overcome that, and I would say the primary way to overcome that, is what's called... The Puritans were really big into this, but it's called meditation. It's not meditation in the Buddhist sense, or in the Eastern sense, or in this type. It literally means you look at Scripture and you meditate on it. You chew on it. You see, um, you see Isaac doing it in the field whenever, whenever Rachel's brought to him. You see his wife come, but what when she's coming? What before she gets there, he's out in the field meditating. All it means, you know, it's not like you're just sitting there praying with mindless. The word is a Christian word. And it means that you're contemplating the things of God's word. You're sitting with God's word and you're thinking about it. You're meditating on it. You're ruminating. You're focused on these truths of scripture. So you dwell on the resurrection, for instance. And you just dwell on all the things in scripture that speak of the resurrection. And you just soak in it. That's the way to overcome that. Because in, in prayer in general, this goes along with prayer. So as you're praying, you're dwelling on scripture. And what that does is it becomes, um, it's, it's almost like this, this softening effect on us spiritually. It has this softening effect where these things continue to be real for us. We're not just calloused or kind of hardened. And I'm not saying we, um, I'm not saying in the, in the sense of an unbeliever. But I'm saying these truths are not just, they're not just words for us. When we actually dwell and contemplate and meditate on what they actually mean. What's actually being said. And so think about that, though. In your own life, examine, okay, in what areas have I made a false Christ? And what, are, what areas have I made a false God? Because that's idolatry. We don't want that. And what areas have, have things kind of become just going through the motion, become rote, ritualistic? And what areas, you know, and, 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 and when you go and you sit with the Lord and dwell on these things, you will become softened. <laughs> Lastly, I'll say this, okay, so there is a warning here. The first warning is that, okay, most of the time in the church, in the history of the church, okay, where Christ goes, wherever Christ has a footprint, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Capernaum, you know what happens after Christ ascends? And you know what happens after the disciples go forth? More or less, pretty quickly, at least within the first 50 years or so, there's a church that's built in those communities. In Nazareth, there was not a church built in Nazareth until 325 A.D., Three twenty-five, three hundred years after Christ is there in the synagogue preaching the gospel. Christ will not be seen in a synagogue for the rest of the Gospel of Mark. This is the last time he'll be seen teaching in a synagogue. So what's the what? I mean, the warning is is it, like Christ says. He tell he says, "Woe to you, Capernaum! Woe to you, Chorazin, Woe to you to these places where the gospel goes forth and they they don't receive it." He says, "On the day of judgment, it will be better for the for the people in Sodom and Gomorrah." who are destroyed with fire and brimstone than it will be for those places where the gospel goes forth, Christ goes forth, preaches, teaches, they hear it, they see them and they reject them. That's a warning for us. To the extent that we have been given light, that's a warning for our children. To the extent that they're born in covenant households, right? They are, they are responsible for what they hear. They're responsible for that. It's a big deal. You and I are responsible for what we're exposed to in the scriptures. And especially if you're if you're an unbeliever, you know, it's it's like when you go and evangelize like at Texas Tech or something, they're always worried about the, the heathens in China and whether or not they're ever gonna what happens if they die and never hear the gospel, and you're like, dude, you've heard the gospel a thousand times and you still are at war with God. What about you? I mean, this nation is under God's judgment, just like Nazareth was under God's judgment, because you have the living God come to this area, saturated for a while, and it's rejected. There's a judgment that's going to happen on this land and on this country and everywhere else the gospel goes forth and it's rejected. Um, the last thing I want to hit on is that idea as far as the miracle part. Lack of miracles does not mean that you have a lack of faith. So what Christ is doing in this time period is not normal. This is not a normal season of church history or church life. God does do miracles. God does work in people's life. He does work miracles in people's life. But what happens is, is people will use passages like this to say that if you truly have faith, God will do something for you. And if God does not do something for you, then clearly you did not have enough faith. I'm sure we've all been exposed to that at some point or another. I know um, my mom was... So I have a sister who's very... She has all kinds of mental disorders. I mean... um, but so, so my mom has a friend and the friend would go to my mom and say, you know, you, you really need to examine your life to figure out what sin that you committed or what do what have you done for, for, for God, not to hear your prayer, to heal your daughter. And, 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 you know, my sister at that point was like 22, 21, 22, but this lady's like telling her, Hey man, you got to figure this out. And my mom's like, I don't I'm praying all the time, you know, I don't know what it is. She's like, desperate. Who's your daughter? You know? So this is a when you're reading scripture, realize, okay, when Christ is doing these miracles, Christ, these are these are shadows, these are typological these are things that point to the ultimate miracle, which is essentially the resurrection. We think, of, we think of salvation in terms usually spiritually. We say, you know, when we're born again, spiritually something happens, our minds are changed, that's true, my thinking is changed, everything changes. We forget about the fact that part of what Christ is doing, He's here to restore us physically as well. That's what the resurrection's all about. You know, the, the consummation really is not just when you die you and I are going to be with Christ we will be spiritually we will be with Christ but what are we waiting for that's not the end right we're waiting for our glorified bodies we're waiting for the general resurrection so all of these miracles are pointing to the restoration of people in anticipation of the great restoration that's going to take place at the general resurrection and especially for God's people there's going to be glorified bodies restoration of their bodies and so don't look at these as saying you know what this is normative this is something that I'm gonna you know I'm gonna I, I've got to see happen if I have enough faith that's not at all what's happening this is a unique situation and I'm not again saying that Christ I you know you pray to God if you're sick God can heal you we've done that David right we pray all the time man I pray all the time if someone's sick we pray for you because why God heals people that's true. But as far as making it like a one-to-one where you can walk around and you're like, man, we, you know, we have a guy that, that yesterday it's amazing when you go out and evangelize, you come back with like 40 stories in the course of two hours. So this guy out there yesterday, he's like, oh, I'm an apostle, right? We're like, well, what do you mean by that? He's like, I, you know, I, when Christ says that if you have enough faith as a mustard seed, you can move mountains, you can tell the mountains to go over here and they'll go over here. And so I say, okay, well, there's a tree right there, right? There's a tree. Can you make that tree go over that building? And he's like, yeah. I was like, all right, let's see it. And so he looks at that tree for like a good 30 seconds, just pointing at it like this. Eye closed 30 seconds. And then he says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, I command you, you know, be thrown over this. And he's yelling it at this boy screaming. Everyone's like, why is he screaming? Nothing happens. All right. And then we say, okay, now do you believe that you're not a, an apostle, and he walks away thinking he's saying, at least, no, I'm still an apostle, right? So it's 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 kind of like that. There's not a it's not a one to one. I mean, God's not our genie in the bottle that tells us, hey, it's it's like this equation, you know, two plus two equals four. If you have two and two, you're guaranteed four. No, God is sovereign, and God's not always going to heal us. God's not always going to. Um, He hears our prayers. He's not always going to respond to them in the way that we want him to, though. And just because that happens does not mean anyone lacks faith. Again, these are pointing to the restoration to come, the resurrection to come, that's going to take place at the end of the world that we can rejoice in. Every person that Christ heals is now dead. What was the point of being healed if that's all it was? But Christ says, no, that's not all there was. There's the resurrection which everything in his life is going to culminate in. It's not just the cross, it's the resurrection. And that's why we're seeing these miracles being done. Next week, we're going to see the disciples be sent out. They're going to go forth, and they're going to be an extension of what Christ has already started. And um, and we can look at ourselves as that extension as well, because after they die, disciples from them, they go forth, and here we are today still as extensions of Christ. So we'll see that next week. But let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a gracious, gracious God. And Lord, we thank you that despite the, despite the ways that we try to twist and contort your Son into images that we make, idols that we make in our hearts, we thank you, O oh God, that you continue to call us back to Scripture. You continue to point us to, to truth and away from our own, our own false ideas of Jesus Lord, give us grace to have hearts that are not hardened or calloused by the by the good things that we've heard, but that we're softened by it. Lord, give us grace to always have hearts that are in the process of, of being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, sensitive to the truth of your scriptures. We pray, O oh God, that these these things like the resurrection and Christ and the life to come and the new birth, all these, these glorious realities, Lord, let them be true for us. We pray that you'd help us, Lord, and bless our children, O oh God, as we as we immerse them in your truths, that that it wouldn't just be something they memorize or know, but that they would truly call upon your name, O oh Lord, in truth. That it would that it would sink in, that it would that it would click. And O oh God, we pray that you would help us in our life as we're exposed to to ridicule and um, rejection because we follow Christ. Or we pray that you would give us grace to stand firm and to continue going forth anyways, to continue speaking. The truth of christ and demonstrating that in our lives bless us O lord you've you've called us to these to these great occupations at work and in the home and with with each other with our neighbors wherever you send us forth this week oh god we pray that you would use us in this harvest and that clovis would be turned to christ or earth texas or sudan or fort sumner portales all these places that they would turn to christ oh lord use us let us be extensions for you oh god we know that you are with us seated at the right hand of power, O God, and yet you're with us. We praise you for that. In his name, amen.